HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. This week on Meat in 3, we're embracing the spooky spirit of Halloween, from zombies to witches. We're exploring the odd, the occult, and the taboo in the world of food. There are restaurants with no storefront shrunken down into hundreds of square feet versus thousands of square feet. No servers, no hosts, nobody taking your order. The rats in the sewers are now smelling, all of a sudden, fresh food molecules. And those rats were like, holy cow, follow that scent. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So in the U.S., when food and agriculture companies grow, especially in animal agriculture, the farms tend to get bigger, the operations get more consolidated, the animals themselves are generally concentrated in higher and higher numbers and confined inside. Vital Farms is bucking that trend. They have grown into a really large national egg company while keeping the farm small and keeping the chickens outside, basically doing everything a little bit differently. So I'm excited to talk about that path and dig into questions of scale and sustainability and animal welfare with my guest today. Russell Diaz-Canseco is the president and CEO of Vital Farms, the largest pasture-based egg company in the country. Russell, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. Good to be with you. Yeah, and you know, when I was prepping for the show, I remembered you were actually on once before when I did an episode in response to uh, Agriculture Secretary Sunny Purdue's comments on small farms. Um, So really, I should be saying, welcome back. (laughs) But I'm glad to have you back because, you know, that was a panel where we were talking about a specific event in the news and there were a lot of guests and we didn't really have a chance to talk 
about vital farms and and how you do what you do and what you do. So, um, so I think a great place to start would just be, you know, for folks who don't know vital farms, can you tell us a little bit about the origin story? Absolutely. So, you know, Vital Farms is an ethical food company. And the story began back in 2007 when our founder, Matt O'Hare, and his wife, Catherine Stewart, had an ambitious vision to produce high quality, humanely raised food at scale. And they started on a 27 acre plot of land uh, in South Austin, Texas, with a small flock of hens and values that were rooted in the principles of conscious capitalism, which is... um, basically a, a, a type of multi-stakeholder capitalism that holds that companies deserve a higher purpose than just profits. And that uh, takes into account the sustainability to all stakeholders of the business. So since day one, we've managed our business in the best interest of all of our stakeholders. We're making decisions that prioritize the long-term benefits to our farmers, uh, suppliers, customers, consumers, communities, the environment, our crew members, and our stockholders. Taking care of our stakeholders is the fabric of our brand. In 2017, we elected to become a public benefit corporation, which makes us legally obligated to prioritize those stakeholders. And we elected to do this because it was a natural extension of the ethical business we built from the beginning and a demonstration of our commitment to conscious capitalism. So fast forward to today, we work with nearly 200 small family farms across an area of the country we call the pasture belt, where it's warm enough for animals to go outside year round and wet enough for there to be really substantial vegetative cover for them to enjoy. And uh, we're in over 14,000 stores nationwide with eggs and butter and uh, other items that are made from eggs and butter. Right. So, I mean, it's been, it's been quite a journey from that first small farm to where you are today. Um, And I actually had the um, opportunity to go to Missouri in 2018, and I saw two Vital Farms farms. <laughs> um, oh, that's great! Uh, yeah, it was it was an incredible opportunity, and um, you know, I I really I remember so vividly the experience of being on those farms and these these large barns um, with, we were there first thing in the morning when the farmers uh, opened the doors for the hens to come out and they kind of just were itching to get out and then just came flying out and spreading out in the pastures. Um, and, you know, I saw the the farmers talked about how they rotate the hens on different pastures to give the pastures time to regrow. And um, that that's what it, you know, sort of like a picture that I got. Um do most of the farms look like that? Like, can you paint us a picture of what a typical Vital Farms operation looks like? Yeah, I mean, you've really captured it. And that's still very much our model. So a, f- a few things that uh, I think are, you know, would really stand out about what we do. First of all, you mentioned um, pasture raising. All of our birds are pasture raised. And we, you know, we started with a definition of pasture raising that comes from Certified Humane. In fact, we helped develop that standard with Certified Humane. And uh, so that just sets some basic ground rules around how much space the birds get and, uh, and how much space they get both in the pasture and inside the barn. It, it sets the uh, kind of the framework for having a pasture management plan, for example, which is what the farmer was describing to you. They, they rotate the birds onto different sections of pasture so that it doesn't get eaten down um, and then ultimately simply become dirt. Uh, we want 
uh, essentially we want our farmers to be pasture managers and vegetation managers as much as they are um, chicken, chicken farmers. Um, and uh, you know, our farms do vary in size. So we have some smaller farms that might have as few as 5,000 chickens and some larger ones that might have as many as 20,000 chickens. Um, regardless of how many chickens a farm has, um, the, the amount of space per bird remains the same. So more chickens means a bigger piece of land. That 20,000 bird uh, farm would have 50 acres of pasture available for the birds. Um, and, and basically the way we think about size is um, we want a farm that uh, an individual farmer, maybe with the help of some family members, could manage on his or her own. Um, in comparison to a 20,000 bird farm that might be in our network, uh, a new uh, cage-free farm being built by one of the large uh, agricultural companies in America would, would have up to 3 million birds on a single farm. So it's still a very small uh, scale relative to that kind of industrial version. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious how you go about finding farmers. Um, do you typically find them? Do they reach out to you? Like, this is a whole big network now of, of many farms, and it seems like it would take a while to build that. So what does that kind of process look like? Well, that's another thing that I think is relatively unique to Vital Farms. It's less common, I think, uh, in, in the agricultural space that we really focus on having direct relationships with our farmers. So um, it w I would describe that as a very high touch and very supportive relationship. So it's not just a, 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 a procurement contract, but rather it's, a, it's truly intended to be a long-term relationship. And the result of that, and that includes a lot of people on our team that visit our farms regularly, both um, to help facilitate inspections by all the various third parties that inspect our farms to make sure we're doing what we say and the farmers are doing what they say, but also people that just go out to help make sure the farmers are getting the very best out of their farm and helping the birds achieve their kind of genetic potential. Um, because if our farmers are profitable and successful, then we'll be successful. Um, but in terms of recruiting them, I think, one of the ways that all that support pays back is that um, we have a very strong reputation in the market and farmers call us every day asking if we have uh, an opening for them in our network. We don't do any advertising, any outbound marketing. Um, the way we recruit farmers is we, we, we start by just answering the phone. Um, but then beyond that, we actually put a lot of focus on on selecting just the very best farmers whose values are aligned with ours. It's not unlike um, hiring a new employee, right? You wanna make sure that they're gonna be set up for success and that they've got the skills and the will to do a great job. You also wanna make sure they're a cultural fit. And we follow a, a very similar approach in, in selecting our farmers. Right. Well. I mean, you're talking about the relationship and, you know, I'm interested in that because, you know, contract farming in, in animal agriculture tends to get a bad rap in terms of the financial um, relationship between the farmer and bigger companies. And, you know, a lot of farmers in traditional animal agriculture get are sort of left on the hook with really large investments in infrastructure and they don't have ownership. Um, 
over their animals or uh, there's there's a lot of issues. Can you talk a little bit about the financial model like um if farmers are coming to you because they you know they want to they they've heard good things. Um what are those good things? Like how does your model differ from those traditional models that tend to exploit the growers? Yeah, I appreciate that. And and you know, I some of our farmers have experienced what you're describing and they're some of our strongest advocates because they have that as a point of reference. Um, so a few things that really stand out. When, when we first started working directly with our farmers at the beginning of 2015, before that we had worked with another egg company when we were very small and they were in charge of finding farmers and helping them be successful and then selling us the eggs. Um, when we first started working with directly with farmers, we had we had two, two kinds of contracts we found. One kind um, is what uh, the industry calls an integrator contract. And it's a little bit like you might have if you worked with, with a, one of the big broiler companies like Tyson Foods. And that is the farmer owns the farm and provides the labor and the company owns the chickens and the feed and, um, you know, basically um, pays the farmer for the volume of eggs that come off that farm. And uh, another group of farmers are what we call buy-sell farmers. Um, I don't think that's an industry term, but basically uh, that group of farmers owned all the inputs to their farm. So they owned the farm, they owned the birds, they owned the feed, and then they sold us eggs. And it was very interesting. It became obvious very quickly that there was a performance difference in the two farms. That the farmers who owned their own birds, owned their own feed, and ultimately, I think, had, uh, had that confidence that if for some reason Vital Farms disappeared the next day, they had a viable operation, they could sell eggs to somebody else. Their farms made more money. They produced more eggs. They, their birds were less likely to become sick or die. They, on any measure, the average of those farmers was better than the ones who, who grew up in the system where they felt like the company had some control over them. And, and interestingly, um, you know, that was a system that you know, was common in that, in that area of the country where we had those contracts. And so over time, we've really come to favor that model, which puts the farmer on an equal footing. And so we've not, we have not written a new you know, integrator contract since 2015. And we and, and I believe we're down to if if we have any left, it would be a single digit number of farmers who farm in that way. Um, and we absolutely believe that when you um, have a model that empowers the farmer, and the farmer has the ability to walk away if they really don't agree with what you want them to do, or if it's just not a good fit for them, then you really end up with the ones who are totally sold on what you're doing and uh, are bought in to the system. Right. Um, how long are typical contracts with Vital Farms? Yeah, so what we do is uh, today when we sign up a new farmer, um, we have them build a, a custom farm uh, that meets the needs of our birds and of our model. And that, and that new farm typically is for 20,000 birds. Um, 
we worked with all the banks in our farming areas to, to understand what would be an appropriate and market competitive contract. And so the initial contract term is for three flocks and a flock generally is about a year and a quarter. So uh, that would be, um, you know, pushing four years, a four year contract. Um, and during that time, we buy all the eggs that that farm produces and we hedge um, the feed cost changes for that farmer. So we adjust how much we pay for the eggs so that the farmer doesn't suffer if uh, for some reason corn or soy prices go up. Uh, that way, if the farmer does their job and the farm is well managed, they have a pretty predictable sort of uh, cash flow coming from that farm. And we want, we want that security for them. Right. So you talked a little bit about um, what the farms look like in terms of um, the facilities and how the, the chickens are outside. Um, I think, you know, that's, that seems to me like the biggest differentiator that they are outside for so much of the day out on pasture. Um, but of course, you, they still need to be fed um, in, in addition to all the grubs and whatever they're getting from um, the 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 grazing. Um, so Vital Farms has two lines. One is organic um, eggs and one is non-organic. Um, and I'm just curious why that is, especially at the, because you're sort of so far beyond other companies in terms of pasture standards, um, why, why you didn't choose to go organic across the board? Yeah. So, um, and actually there's a third line, which is non-GMO, uh, project verified. So, um, it's, so it's funny, you, we, we really think of it as uh, two dimensions. Uh, one dimension has to do with feed and a farm certification, and the other has to do with animal welfare. All of our farms, as you mentioned, are pasture-raised farms that meet what we think is the highest standard uh, for pasture raising, for, for the welfare of the animals and for the, um, the welfare of the animals, but also the sustainability of the food system. And, and that's true regardless of the kind of supplemental feed the birds get or whether or not a farm has an organic certification. Um, the, the thought process behind having three different feed types has to do with consumer preferences and trying to make a more sustainable food system accessible at different price points, frankly, to different consumers. You know, my family eats the non-organic eggs um, we have done extensive testing on the eggs to see if there was anything uh, that came through into the egg itself uh, that might be reflected, reflective of the fact that, that the grains were not organic, for example. And we couldn't find a trace of anything, not just an allowable amount. We couldn't find a trace of any of the over 200 substances that we tested for, including, you know, uh, uh, common pesticides, for example. Um, so it, there's no, in, in my experience, and, and certainly I wouldn't feed my family or sell to the market something that I wasn't confident in. In my experience, the eggs um, are, uh, you know, have, have no, um, are not affected at all by the fact that they're not organically produced. But what it does do is it allows, remember, we're not just about animal welfare. We're not just about the environment, those are all great uh, expressions of our values. We're trying to build 
a sustainable food system for this country. And the reality is that um, organic pasture-raised proteins are pretty expensive in this country and they're pretty, and often they can only be found in certain markets and in farmers markets, which are kind of expensive and time-consuming propositions. And we've always been about ethical food at scale. And to bring it, bring this kind of food to more and more Americans, we had to be flexible around um, some choices, including the kind of feed that some of our birds consume. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, well, first of all, I just want to point out that there there are definitely other reasons to, to choose organic other than just pesticide contamination um, in your diet, right? A lot of people choose it for environmental reasons. Um, but um, I want to, I want to get more into the, I mean, it, the question of cost is, is real, right? It's big. And, and, you know, these, the eggs do cost a lot more. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, is there a point, so you, you scaled in such a kind of different way than other companies and, using that model, is there a point at which Vital Farm scale will allow or cause the price of the eggs to come down? Um, does that happen in the same way when you have a business model that looks like yours? Well, it's funny. We, um, we've been very thoughtful about um, scaling those parts of the supply chain that really lend themselves to scale without affecting our standards. So while we are still focused very strongly on small family farms that can be true owner operator, um, you know, managed, uh, we built a world-class egg packing facility in Springfield, Missouri, um, because we knew that um, we, you know, by having a large centralized facility, we could afford the very best uh, technology. We could afford, afford the very best people to ensure a really safe and well-managed facility and the very best uh, crew members to staff it. So um, we, we do enjoy, and the consumer does enjoy some uh, scale economy. Certainly as, as order volumes go up, the trucks are more full and that helps with costs, et cetera. Um, but the reality is, that food done right isn't cheap. And we are at historic lows in terms of uh, the percent of household income spent on food in this country. It's a fraction of what it was 100 years ago. And there's not, there's, I really feel like there's only one direction you can go from there. And um, increasingly what we're finding is people are willing to vote with their hard earned dollars for food that reflects their values and their preferences. And so I don't, I won't apologize for the high price of our eggs. We put a lot of care and a lot of thought and there are a lot of stakeholders who are having very good outcomes, including the small farmers who usually lose at the end of the movie in this country. Um, and that's all reflected in the price of our products and people are paying for it. So something's working. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I try to point out a lot when there are questions of price that, you know, the, problem of of um food food access is such a real problem in this country but we never talk about we always end up talking about the price of the food rather than um why people can't afford to buy food which you know are questions of wages and economics and um it it doesn't seem to me like the answer is to exploit farmers to make food cheaper it's to to figure out why people don't have enough money to buy to afford the real cost of food right (laughs) 
and, and the, the thing I would point out, especially about eggs, which is, which is the majority of our business today. You know, when I joined Vital Farms, I, my observation was that, you know, my family had, we had started eating more organic foods and more pasture-raised foods. And we were going to the farmer's market and we, we were finding farms that followed the Joel Salatin pasture rotation model. And we were buying food from those farms. And, and it, was, it was an expensive proposition. And we spent a lot of our weekends searching for, for that kind of food, which is something not everybody has the luxury of doing. And when I, when I saw what Vital Farms was trying to do, which was to bring ethical food to national scale, I kind of did the math on these eggs. You know, um, our, our most expensive egg is an organic dozen eggs, and that might be $6.99 a dozen, $7 a dozen. And more typically, you're going to find a dozen non-organic eggs for about $6 a dozen, which is, it's 50 cents an egg. Well... If I'm eating a fast food breakfast, as many time-starved people are, I might be spending, I don't know, three or four dollars on breakfast in a drive-thru. Well, I got 50 cents an egg. I could have three eggs, a little toast, glass of milk, cup of coffee, and I did it for the same price that I'm currently paying for my fast food breakfast. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the, our eggs have a higher price point than factory-farmed eggs, but I still feel like it's a very accessible, high quality protein for Americans. Yeah, that's a really good point too. Um, We have to take a quick break. We will be back in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. All right, this is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. I've been talking to Russell Diaz-Canseco from Vital Farms. And before the break, we were talking a lot about uh, how Vital Farms operates and um, pasture-based systems. I want to talk a little bit about the future to wrap things up. So, (laughs) Russell, 2020 was is, was, um, we're still in it, a terrible year pretty much for everyone. Um, and I was thinking before this episode when, as I was prepping, maybe for everyone except Vital Farms. Um, so, so you know, you all went public and had this wildly successful IPO. Um, people have been talking about it a lot. Um, you've sort of got, that just means now you've got lots of money in the bank. What does the IPO mean for 
Well, first and foremost, it means that we get to continue to be an independent company focused on our mission um, uh, and, our, and our purpose, our mission of bringing ethical food to the table. Uh, you know, we've always been thoughtful and judicious about the way that we raised money to help support our growth. The company has always been run with an eye toward um, growing while still being profitable because as we learned in the book Conscious Capitalism, which was co-written by John Mackey of Whole Foods and Raj Sisodia at Babson University, um, you know, profits aren't the purpose of our business, but kind of like uh, blood isn't the purpose of being a human, you know, without it, you die. And so they have to be there. And so we've always been very thoughtful about living within our means. And when we did take on growth capital, about taking it on from mission-driven impact investors who really uh, were aligned with what we were trying to do. As we grew um, and as time passed, those early investors needed a way to put their initial investments back into their funds. That's just part of the cycle of venture capital. And so um, the very best way that we could help give them the liquidity that they deserved and um, needed while also keeping us from having to sell to maybe a, a bigger strategic buyer or a private equity firm that might uh, have, a, a, you know, might disagree with, with our strategy or our values was to become a public company. And I think, you know, you described us as having a successful IPO. I appreciate that. I think if, if nothing else, the success uh, that, that our company had in going public this year was a great validation that the financial markets also believe that our differentiated approach to business and to producing food is the future. And that's, I think, why people wanted to invest in the stock. So the IPO to me meant independence. And what I think it means to our whole um, ecosystem of, of stakeholders is it means that we're on the right track. Right. And does it mean um, we should expect like a, a lot more um, growth in the company in terms of like the number of farms that you're working with, the number of eggs you're producing? You know, we um, we did not go public um, to enable a change in our strategy. You know, we're continuing to run the playbook we've run, you know, for 13 years. And we're going to continue growing as fast as we can, um, as, as fast as we can with, uh, with all of our stakeholders in mind and ensuring that we're delivering on our stakeholder commitments. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to continue to innovate as quickly as we can bring new products to the market that are truly differentiated and are done really well. Um, and it's funny, capital was never the biggest constraint to doing that. It's actually always been about people and our ability to attract and retain the very best people out there. And so as we scale the organization, we'll be able to scale everything we're doing. Right. And you mentioned innovation. I wanted to ask you uh, before we wrap up just about other um, products, you know, you have expanded beyond eggs and there are products like ghee and butter. Is, is that a big part of the future for Vital Farms or do you think that eggs will always be the core product and you'll, you'll keep expanding? What does that look like? So I think it's fair to say that eggs will continue to be a big part of what we do for the foreseeable future. 
Um, that said, you know, when we ask consumers what they want from this brand, uh, the response is generally just about anything that they can eat. Um, we, every category we, we test from, from um, animal proteins to um, ice cream, you know, um, consumers say, yeah, I really want that from Vital Farms because increasingly they're looking for brands that they can trust and, they, and our consumers see us as, as a brand that they can trust to, to produce food that they're feeding their families. So, um, you know, innovation has always been an important part of that, that journey. Um, and we've generally introduced about a new product a year, uh, certainly since I've been here at Vital Farms. Um, but we're very deliberate about it. Uh, anything we bring to market has to, has to be consistent with our values. It has to come from small family farms. It has to have a reason to exist. We, we really do a lot of consumer research to understand unmet needs so that we can meet them in a differentiated way. And, uh, you know, and, and then we have to be confident that we can execute really well um, because we want everybody to have a great experience with the foods that they buy from our brand. Right. Well, Russell, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Lisa. And thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.